0: So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna read from a text today um, that I'm sure all of you, to uh, to at least some degree or another, at a bare minimum anyway, are, are going to be somewhat familiar with. Um, it's the story. It's the story of Jonah, which actually is uh, considered a prophetic book in uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which we also refer, which we also call the Old Testament. Uh, the portion that we're going to read in Jonah kind of falls right in the center of the story, right right in the middle of the story as Jonah is going into this, this great big city that's called Nineveh. And uh, he's calling the people there to, uh, to repentance. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about the, the entirety of the story in a second, but let's read our scripture first. Again, this kind of comes right in the middle of it. It's Jonah 3, uh, 1 through 10. <clears throat> Jonah 3, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to Nineveh great city, proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah set out and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. It was a three days walk all the way across. So Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh that said, By the decree of the king and by his nobles, no human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent change his mind, he may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. And so when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's the word of God for the people of God. So again, that's kind of that's kind of the middle portion of uh, of uh, the book of Jonah, the very, very short book of Jonah, by the way. Jonah's only four, four, like four chapters. If you want to go back and read it, it'll take you all of about 10 or 15 minutes to do so. But I want to refresh y'all's memory a little bit this morning, um, or for those of you who may not have ever heard this story possibly, or maybe have maybe you forgot all the details, let me just kind of give you the, uh, the condensed version of this, of this whole thing, right, kind of the cliff's nose version. <clears throat> so what's happening here is God calls this guy named Jonah. We don't know a whole lot about Jonah. He may be mentioned one other time. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. We, just don't, we don't really know a whole, whole lot about him other than, other than, according to this book, he's a, he becomes a prophet of God. And he calls him to go to the city called Nineveh to call its people to repentance, which is generally what? I mean, that's generally what, the, what a prophet does. He goes and uh, calls people to repentance, calls them to turn back to God. Now, historically, let me tell you a little bit about, about the city of Nineveh. This was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And uh, they were one of, the Assyrian Empire was one of, if not the most feared military powers in the Near, in the near East region in which it was located at the time. Uh, we can read in various places in the Old Testament that, uh, that the, the, uh, the, the political power of Nineveh was really known for its oppression, it was known for its, its military invasions, and again, for its very, very incredible uh, political power. So in Jonah... Uh, chapter one, it's actually described as a wicked city. You can go to chapter three, and you'll see that it's described as a violent city. You'll see that word "violence" kind of repeated a couple times uh, in the story of Jonah. No doubt, Jonah was a Jew. These guys were not. They were not part of the same. They were not part of the same uh, culture. The same, the same sect, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they were oppressive to the Jewish people at the time. So no doubt, Jonah didn't like these folks. That's kind of our starting point here. Understand. That it is a gross under—it would be a gross understatement to say that Jonah didn't like these people. He did not like these people. So we get to the book of Jonah, and what we see in the very first book of the very first verse of the book, actually the very first two <laughs> verses of the book, is God. God calls Jonah to go to this city to prophesy against their witness, against their uh, against their wickedness and their violence. First two verses. That's what that's that's God talking. Go into the city, prophesying against their wickedness, their violence. Well, it takes us all the way into verse three, where Jonah basically says, "Nope," and uh, he turns around, he hops on a boat, and he goes uh, in the exact opposite direction. As a matter of fact, they they consider where he was headed to to be the very ends of the earth at the time. So to say he was fleeing God once again would be a gross, gross understatement. Go, nope, get out of here. Um, so. Undeterred by Jonah's reluctance, <laughs> God sends this massive storm, right? And it, and it starts rocking the boat, uh, so to speak. Uh, it really has the potential to rip this boat to pieces, right? So in the midst of all of this chaos, the midst, the midst of all this storm and, and, the, and, the, and the chaos that surrounds it, Jonah ultimately confesses to the crew of the ship that, hey, I'm, I'm the reason that this is happening. I'm the reason that, that, that you know, God's bringing this upon us. And uh, he says, you know what? If you want this whole thing to be over with, y'all just throw me overboard, and uh, and all this stuff will stop, right? Well, after a little bit of reluctance, the crew ultimately decides to oblige him, and they toss Jonah over the boat, and he gets swallowed by this by this big fish, right? And that's the story that most of us know. He gets swallowed by this fish, and he's he hangs out in the in the fish's belly for about for three days, is what, what the scripture says. So during this time, unsurprisingly, Jonah. Kind of has a change of heart, right? He prays to God, and the fish spits him out onto dry land, which is kind of where we pick up in the in the scriptures today, in chapter three. So Jonah goes into the city, and I, and I hope y'all can appreciate the humor of this story. This is a very humorous story, uh, to a to a great degree. It's already it's already humorous in the fact that Jonah, you know, said, "Nope." Uh, <laughs> as soon as that call was made, "Nope, nope out of here." Um, so he goes into the city after the fish spits him out, and he preaches, if y'all, we, we talked about this Wednesday night, by the way, this is our, one of our scriptures that we talked about in our Bible study, and this is one of the things that I kind of pointed out. Uh, he goes into the city, starts preaching what was ultimately the sorriest, the most half-hearted, and the shortest prophetic message that you will fall that you will find in the Old Testament, probably, probably to his great dismay. Despite preaching that sorriest, one-line sentence of a sermon, the entire city repents of its violence and its wickedness, and they turn to the God of Israel, which would not have been their God, by the way. Keep in mind that they, when, when we read that scripture today, that the, uh, the scripture said that this journey across this, they talk about the, and the expansiveness of, of how big the city was. The journey across the city would have taken three days, Right? Well, the Scripture says that in one day, he had not even gone a third of the way through the city preaching this sorry sermon, and these folks are repenting like crazy, turning to God, uh, repenting of their wickedness, and violence, and all that stuff. Catch this. and I, <laughs> I doubt that you caught this, but I'm going to point it out to you. The story says even the animals repented, right? Did y'all catch that? Yeah. This is how big of a deal this was. The story actually says that even the animals put on sackcloth and 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 bury themselves and rub, rub, rend themselves all in all in ashes. They, the animals repented too, from the king all the way down. So God relents; He changes His mind, and the city is ultimately saved. It says, it says God changes mind at the end of that. At the end of the scripture. Um, so you know, one might think that Jonah would be pretty happy about all this, right? <coughs> you know, they would. One would probably think that that Jonah's pretty ecstatic about this. You know, God sent him out as a prophet. He preached this little message to him, and lo and behold, it worked. And all this entire city of what we find out a little bit later in the Scriptures, it was about 120,000 people, (coughs) repents, and, and they're brought to God in this beautiful, beautiful scene. So you would think that Jonah would just be ecstatic that God used him in this mighty way. If that's what you think, you would be thinking... Very wrongly. Jonah didn't like it at all. As a matter of fact, Jonah maintains the same attitude in the end of the story that he had at the beginning of the story. The scripture says that he was displeased and that he was angry about the situation. Again, Jonah did not like these people. Gross understatement. Check out, though, what he prays to God. And this is not going to be on your screen. Again, you can go back and read it yourself. Later, if you'd like to. Take you 10, 15 minutes to read the whole book. People have repented. They've turned to God. Jonah's off by, him, by himself, thinking through this thing, and he's mad. He's ticked off. He's not happy with the situation at all. And this is what he prays to God in chapter 4. Check out his reasoning for not wanting to go to the city in the first place. He praised God. This is the reason that I fled from you in the first place. Because I knew that you were a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. Let me repeat that one more time. This is the reason, God, that I fled in the first place, because I knew. Let me ad lib this a little bit. I knew you were going to save these people. I knew these people were going to be drawn to you because of your love and through your mercy. Because I knew that you're a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from punishment. After he prays that prayer, Jonah prays to God to just kill me. Just kill me. That's how uh, this is how much this guy did not like people of this city, right? He knew that God was going to do a wonderful thing. He knew that these people were going to be drawn back to God or drawn to God. He didn't want that. He wanted these people to be punished. And understand, Jonah had good reason. They were an oppressive group. I told you in the beginning, they were a very powerful military uh, power. They were oppressive. They were invasive. I'm sure that he would have had good reason for this. He didn't want them saved, but that's what God did. And then there's this weird story um, at the end of the book. Again, it's kind of a humorous thing. This story about um, a bush that God sends to offer Jonah some shade during the day, some protection from the sun, and, he, and then God kills the bush the next day. Uh, y'all feel free to go back and, and check that part out for yourself. Uh, but this is how the book abruptly ends. This is this, and it is, a, it is a very, very, very abrupt ending. This is how God ends the book of Jonah. God says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about those people? Church, there's many, many themes that we could pull out of this very short Old Testament book. You know, we could certainly talk talk about obedience. Uh, We could certainly touch on the subject of repentance. That's a theme that's definitely in this book uh, Wednesday night, we talked about, uh, responding to God. You know, the week before we talked, we, we we talked about listening to God. Wednesday night, we kind of looked at these scriptures and we talked about responding to God. How, how did Jonah respond to God, you know, and the reluctance that he had, um, in, uh, in, in responding to God's call on his life. So that would definitely be a theme. Obedience, repentance, responding to God. Um, you know, are we reluctant, again, to, to, to follow like Jonah, or do we follow Christ without question? That, those types of things. I've heard teachings and I've heard sermons on, on all of those different themes uh, when, when referencing the book of Jonah. Ultimately, though, I don't think that Jonah is about these things. I think those themes are certainly present in that in that book. Absolutely, they're certainly present, but I think they're, they're, they're more of subplots will, than they are the actual primary theme of the, of the book. They're definitely present in the story. In the greater picture, though, in the bigger picture, Jonah is about something much larger. And that's mercy. The unrelenting mercy of God that absolutely pursues us. And I, and I think by now that y'all know how much I love that concept. God pursuing us, that that God literally chases after us. You know, no matter this, we we, we spent weeks talking about this, no matter what we've done, no matter what we might do in the future, no matter what evil, what violence, whatever depravity we may have committed, God's love and mercy is always, always greater than those things. God has no desire whatsoever, none, to see us suffer as individuals, and as in, and as entire communities, as we see with this story of this large 120,000 population city of Nineveh. He has no desire to see his creation suffer as individuals or communities. So that's good news for us, right? Yeah, that's, that's incredible news. That's the good news we've been talking about when we went through Galatians all those weeks. We know the heart of God. We know that God is not intent on our punishment, much less causing us a lot of pain and a lot of torment. God is intent on saving us. God is intent on saving us from ourselves more precisely. He is intent to love us. He is intent on loving us into that intimate relationship that ultimately is going to bring about that change in our hearts, that change that we call what? Repentance. This is where the repentance comes. God's love, pursuit, chasing after us, brings us, draws us to an interior change of heart that we call, change of mind, that we call repentance. So as we consider the story today, thinking about our human relations and how this scripture might apply, um, I don't think we need to be too hard, too hard on Jonah. Jonah's Jonah's got a Jonah's kind of an easy target for us. But let's, you know, let's not really be too hard on him, because if we're honest with each other and if we if we were actually confessed to each other, I think that we'd have to admit that a lot of times we're not really we're not really a whole lot different than he is in this story. You know, we love this idea of God's mercy. We love this idea of God's mercy when it applies to me. We love God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's mercy when it applies to us. We love to recognize that God is there, again, pursuing us, loving us, even when we mess up, even when we have wrong thoughts, even when we say wrong things, even when we commit wrong actions. That's comforting to us, and that should be a comfort to us. We get to rest in that knowledge that despite our mishaps, despite our missteps, despite our shortcomings, despite our sins, God always has our back. God is always in our corner. That's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we have the ability. We can rest in that. What happens, though, in our human relationships a lot of times is like Jonah, we don't oftentimes think that God's mercy should be extended to those people. Whoever those people might happen to be you know as as supposed followers of Christ a lot of times we fail to actively extend our own mercy our own love our own forgiveness to certain people or even to certain people groups (coughs) but Jesus reminds us in his most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through 7 one of the very first things that he says in what we refer to as the Beatitudes in chapter 5 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus' half-brother, James, writes these words. Judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The merciful heart of God and the sometimes unmerciful heart of people is really the central message, the contrast there. Do y'all see that contrast there in that story? Yeah, it's so glaringly obvious once once you see it. The merciful heart of God and the sometimes unmerciful hearts of people is the central message of Jonah. It calls us to repentance. It calls us to ask ourselves where... Have we been? Where are we unmerciful? Where have we as communities, as individuals, as families, as churches, as organizations, where have we chosen to pass judgment? Where have we chosen to villainize? Where have we chosen not to forgive? Where have we chosen to dehumanize, to insult, instead of reflecting the heart and the actions of our Lord Jesus Christ, who ultimately gave himself for us (laughs) in the Most merciful act and the most ultimate merciful act. You know, y'all, y'all have have heard me say. Y'all, y'all very often have heard me say that individuals and churches, for that matter, the global body of Christ really should stand out in society. We should really stand out in culture. We should really wherever we are. I don't care if you're in the United States or continent of Africa, continent of Europe, Antarctica, wherever. We should stand out from society. We should stand out from our cultures. We should be oddballs. We should really be oddities. People should be able to look at us and uh, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we move throughout our daily lives, they should be able to identify us as Christians, as followers of Christ. They should be able to look at us and say, those people are different. Those people are different, right? Right? understand this because I I realize how how that statement can be misconstrued sometimes, so let me just very bluntly and very matter-of-factly put put, put to you what I mean when I make that statement that we should stand out. When I tell you about this, I'm not talking about standing out in some kind of morally superior, morally self-righteous kind of way. I'm talking about standing out the way that Jesus said that we should stand out. As a matter of fact, the way that Jesus said that we would stand out. He didn't say that the world would know us. He didn't say that society would know us by our self-righteousness. He didn't say that culture would know know us because of our moral superiority. He didn't say that the world would know us because we got all of our theological and all of our doctrinal uh, beliefs right, that we somehow scored a 100 on God's theological test. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says the coolest thing in the world. I love these words. If you didn't know anything else about Christianity and our purpose for being here, for being on earth in the first place, this is it. John 13, 34, 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you. Love one another. Now, y'all say that's not a new commandment. That's all in the Bible, right? It's It's in the doggone Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it is. Love one another is all throughout the Bible, but Jesus follows it up with this. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, here's where he completes that thought. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So, why does Jesus say this is a new commandment in the first place? If love your neighbor is all throughout the Bible, why does he say this is a new commandment? Well, he follows it up with just as I have loved you. Jesus raises the bar considerably. That's why he calls this a new commandment. Just as Jesus Christ has loved you, Rudy, Bob, Paulette, Victoria, Kevin, Shirley, just as Jesus Christ has loved you, so you too are to love one another. That significantly raises the expectation and raises the bar of how exactly, and who exactly for that matter, we're called to love. And then he follows it love with what I just told you. This is how everyone is going to know that you are my followers. This is how everyone is going to know. This is how the world is going to know that you are my disciples, not because of your self-righteous supposed moral superiority, because of the way that you crazily, crazily love the people and the world around you, even those who. Jonah. The world will know we're Christians because we love the world just as Jesus loves us. Now that's some serious love. It's a love that requires us to love differently than the world loves. It's a love that requires us to look beyond people's sins. It requires us to look beyond people's shortcomings. It requires us to look beyond people's bad behavior. It requires us to look beyond people's moral defects You name it. And it calls us to something bigger. It calls us to be agents of God's grace and God's mercy as we move throughout the world. Church, we live, I don't know if y'all picked up on this or not, but we live in an unmerciful world. We live in an unmerciful world. We definitely live right now in our immediate culture. We definitely live unmerciful culture and a lot of times again if we're going to be honest we are more prone to go along with the crowd to be disdainful to be scornful to be contemptuous to those who we deem to be less desirable Oftentimes, we are more apt to take that posture to take that stance than we are to extend this incredible grace and this incredible mercy our word for the day to the people that God so loves. You know, I'll go back, and I'm not trying to start a fight or anything, but I'll go back to say, to, and it, shouldn't, shouldn't, be, it just shouldn't be anything that would start a fight, but something I mentioned to you guys a couple weeks ago, you don't have to look any further than our own political and our own public and social discourse and our own public political conversations to observe that on the whole, let's be honest here, Christians don't seem a whole lot different than the rest of society. Do we? Can the world tell the difference between us and the non-Christians when we're having that discourse, when we're having those conversations? You know, at some point, we've got to decide. We've got to make a decision. What's, what's, good, what's more important to us? What's more important to us? Is following Jesus more important to us, being ambassadors of His kingdom to the world around us, or would we kind of just rather be half-Christians Kind of just settling for our, our free ticket, our free ride into heaven, but really not seeking authentic change and authentic change of mind, authentic change of heart, which again is what the Bible calls repentance. <laughs> John Wesley referred to people with that mentality as almost Christians. Church, I don't want to be, I don't want to be an almost Christian. I want people to think of me as a nut job. For the right reasons. <laughs> I want my go-to posture you know, towards the world to be fueled by nothing but pure compassion, pure mercy, pure grace. I am nowhere near that point, church. But I'm closer to it than I was 10, 5, 1 year ago. I don't want to be an almost Christian. I want people to be able to point to me. I want people to be able to point to my wife, to Wayne, to Bemis United Methodist Church and say, those folks are different. Those folks love people that they probably shouldn't love. Those folks love people that rub, rub them the wrong way even. Those folks love people who have done some pretty bad things, who have said some pretty bad things to them, people that don't agree with them. That Those folks are different. That's what I want for my life, and that's what I hope that you guys want for your life. You know, we've talked about grace lately, talked a lot about the book of Galatians and, and God's, you know, unrelenting grace on it that he has for us, the fact that, you know, Nothing that we do or nothing that we don't do can, se- can separate us from the love and the acceptance of God. 100%. I'll stick by that all day long. There's nothing we can do or nothing that we can't do or don't do that's going to separate us from the fact that God loves us and God accepts us wherever we are in life. 100%. But what I'm talking to you today about, I'll to you about today, is not about God's love for you, it's not about God's acceptance for you. This is about following Jesus, because we cannot deny, despite God's love and God's acceptance for us, that if we have the if we have the privilege, if we have the privilege of being alive today, if we have the privilege of being alive today, we cannot deny what we read in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Epistles of Saint Paul that there is a calling on our lives to become something different, to become something holy. God will help us with that, but we have to to make that decision. That is Jesus' ultimate commandment, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that's what God's grace, again, if we have the privilege of being alive, of living out more you, a lot of people don't have that. You know, we talk about God's grace and how God's grace works and and not earning salvation. We always talk about the, the, we call him the thief on the cross, right? You know, this guy didn't have the opportunity to live a holy life. This guy didn't have an opportunity to grow into the image of Christ. He didn't have the opportunity to pray to God anymore any more than he already did pray to God. He died right there alongside Jesus, but he looked over to Christ and he said... grace. He didn't have the privilege that it was to actually become a disciple. We do. We do. And we can't deny that call. God's grace will assist us in this. But we have to make that decision. Church. And this applies to every facet of our lives. And that's why I bring up some of these outside conversations that we have a lot of times. You know, this applies to the way that you treat your wife, your husband, son your daughter your grandmother your grandfather your aunt your uncle your cousins it applies to the way that the way you treat and what your posture is what our posture is towards the people that we work alongside of and yeah it, 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 it applies to organizations and groups of people and the way that we approach our social and our political thoughts our conversations you can have different political and social beliefs than other people That's fine. It's the way that you approach them and respond to them that's going to identify whether or not you're an authentic follower of Christ. What's more important to me as I move throughout the world? And God will help you with this, I believe wholeheartedly. He gives us that decision. He gives us the the, the will, the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this. And then if we seek God, that's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the grace of God. God will assist us. Spirit will assist us in that heart transformation. We can't do it ourselves. Y'all know I've said that a thousand times. Self-will is nothing. Nothing. But if we give that to God, I assure you, He's going to help us along the way. Y'all pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. God, we sometimes can see seems so repetitive because we because we talk about it so much. But do we really, really realize it in our day-to-day lives? God, we talk about your mercy towards us. Uh, your, your unrelenting pursuit towards us. Help us to realize, God, that you have that unrelenting grace. You have that unrelenting mercy, that unrelenting pursuit towards other people as well, even those that we consider the lowest and the most unworthy among us. Help us not to see people as unworthy in the first place. Help us to see people as you see them, as human beings created in the very image of God Himself. Let that be our starting point in our relationships. Let that be our starting point in our posture towards other people, other people, groups. May you be our model. May our hearts be open, our minds be open to receive and to become. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.